All right, you guys, you guys can take a seat. Welcome. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. should be easy. Um, and as you're turning there, um, I wanted to start this morning with a confession. I wanted to start this morning with a confession of um, wrong thought. I, I, I found myself in ill thought this week and that, I as a, that I as a pastor, that I as a Bible teacher, I got very hung up this week in the presentation of Easter. I got very hung up in the presentation of Easter this week and had completely forgotten, sadly, about the power of Easter. You know, these thoughts of like, let's blow their socks off. Let's, let's, let's do free car washes or hand out cans of Pepsi. That makes everything all better. Or, I don't know, like, fire off a t-shirt cannon thing. And I was thunderstruck by my wicked heart and my poor thinking that somehow if we just had the right cocktail of jokes and good music and an iPad raffle, that somebody here this morning may decide to make Christ their everything. Or even start to go to church on the reg or whatever it might be. And I just wanted to confess that because that is foolish thinking. I'd forgotten in my own heart the radical, unorthodox, wild news that Easter is, purely as it is. Not decorated, not doctored up, as it is. Easter raw and clear and, and honest about the life and death and about Christ's death to life. Now, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not alone. I hope I'm not alone. Perhaps some here have had that kind of week or that kind of month or that kind of life, and your thinking was like mine, to just so easily forget or even just deny. Or how about this? Let's go a step further. Maybe you came here today expecting nothing. Maybe you drove here today expecting nothing. I mean, just maybe it hasn't even crossed our minds or entered our hearts that something may happen today. I believe it's probably safe to assume that for some of us, the Easter rhythm has become like the sort of like annual like disc skip or like a holiday rut, right? That we, this is what we do on Easter. Everybody looks so fancy. This is what we do on Easter. I'm wearing a button up. This never happens. This is what we do. We hide the baskets. We go to church. We feel guilty about religious stuff. We get drunk on ham. We have peep overload. Happy Easter, right? And this is true for both unchristians and Christians alike here today, where it might be so easy to forget the power of Easter. So with that, I'd like to talk about this morning is the danger, and I would say the grave danger, of simply being content with just correct religious beliefs about God, about heaven, about Jesus, and yes, about Easter Sunday and all of its implications, or for some, lack thereof. I believe this was the place, this was the mindset that those closest to Jesus, the disciples, this is the place they were at. They'd come to Easter morning expecting nothing. It was a place of correct beliefs, but a great huge disconnect between correct beliefs and the chasm of their motives or their ambitions or their purpose or ultimately their, their lives. And one disciple in particular I'd want to focus on today, if that's okay with you, I would like us to see the Easter narrative from the lens of Thomas. 
So I can safely assume that maybe everybody here has at least heard of, we at least know his nickname, right? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, poor guy. Read with me starting in verse 24. Starting in verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So for Thomas in this exact moment, the cross, the burial, Easter has happened. It has already happened. Some days have passed and Jesus had this huge reveal to the other disciples. So then Thomas has missed this big, epic, heavenly moment. He's missed it. Thus, Thomas is bumming. I mean, he's, he's bumming hard. He scrolled through Instagram and he saw that everybody was hanging out without him, right? Hashtag best party ever. And people were just taking selfies with Jesus and he saw that he missed it. He's very sad. Look at verse 25. I feel like the disciples kind of rub in his face. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I don't think that was the actual, you know what I mean. But he said to them, Unless, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe in Easter, in a resurrection, in a divine Jesus, unless. Obviously, we can see why Thomas gets his cute little nickname, right? He's a pessimist. He would say, no, I'm a realist. No, Thomas, you're a pessimist. He's a negative Nancy. He's a worry wart. He's anxious. He's angst-ridden. He's essentially the, the Eeyore of the group, right? That's Thomas. Unless I see the wounded body, I, I've timed that perfectly. Unless I see the wounded body, I will never believe. See, Thomas, like many of us today, are coming to the Easter story, the Easter holiday, with nah on our lips. Maybe people have come today with nah. Or maybe we've come today with doubt in our hearts or conditions on the brain. Because this ancient idea of Easter, of a resurrection, is, well, it sounds crazy. Right? It sounds crazy. See, if you're here and you lean towards Thomas-like thinking that I will never believe in less and less and less, if you're here and you have Thomas-like thinking, I feel you. I get it. I completely resonate with that because the Easter news is a complete reversal of thought. It's a complete reversal of the universe, really. See, the Bible teaches and collective church believes not in a metaphorical resurrection, not in a spiritual resurrection, not in a ghostly resurrection, but a bodily resurrection. And if you remove this resurrection, you remove the beating heart of Christianity. We believe he rose literally and not reviving or resuscitation. Not reviving resuscitation where Jesus would then just die again. Resurrection means death to life eternal. This is why we believe that the Easter message is, yes, Jesus is alive, but it's so much more. The powerhouse message of Easter is that Jesus has risen. That Jesus has risen from the dead. 
And Thomas, our buddy, could not cognitively, spiritually, mentally, philosophically, intellectually embrace it. Mm -mm. It is now, I want us to make sure, it's not that the other disciples were more credulous or, or, or easy to believe. And Thomas was the only one with his wits about him. No, no, far from it. One writer calls it chronological snobbery. If any 2017 minds think that people back then, ancient people groups, were more easy or eager to believe. The skepticism you have or had was true for them, if not more so. Easter was just as bothersome then as it is today. In fact, some time ago I heard a distinguished American scholar And he was talking about ancient history, and he was talking about somebody communicating the resurrection at that time. He stated, if an educated Greek or Roman would have been told that somebody would have been raised from the dead, their very first thought would have been, how in the world do we get him back in his grave? Historically, the Easter gospel, the Christian message, would be considered grotesque and even frightening. So the modern-day pushback that the disciples somehow conjured all of this up is ridiculous. History tells us the disciples were terrified. They were terrified, hiding behind locked doors. These fishermen and so on were not these strategic planners scouting out, how do we make this new religion or cult thing? In fact, we don't have time to get into all of it, but all historical documents and accounts present how This resurrection idea in no way could be man-made. The eyewitnesses then, the very first eyewitnesses being women, and back then women were not respected or they could not be credible sources. I know, dumb, the future is female. I'm with you ladies, that's dumb. The fact that nobody has ever once produced a body. Again, the disciples didn't even suspect a resurrection. How could they conceive of making that up? And again, 95% of the disciples gave their life for the Easter message. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, but people die for stuff that isn't true all the time. Right, you are, but the disciples of Jesus would have known because they would have concocted it. You see, humanity is ready to die for conviction, not for self-made concoctions. Now, if we slow our roll just a little bit, I don't think it was scientific, philosophical, historical proof Thomas was after. These are not the fragile words of a committed skeptic. Thomas is a devout Jewish man. Thomas knows the scriptures. He believes in the Hebrew God of the Old Testament. What I want us to see here in your scriptures is Thomas Thomas is in pain. Pain on Easter. Maybe somebody here today is in pain. I might wager that that Thomas spoke these words through tears. Thomas, only days before this moment, suffered severe disappointment and disillusionment. As Jesus, his Messiah, think about this, as Jesus, his Messiah and friend, was brutally and, and shamefully executed. All the other disciples bore this disappointment for 72 hours. Thomas, it says, carried it for eight days. Eight days. Eight days of Thomas walking around with condemnation. Eight eight days of Thomas walking around outraged 
that he didn't know this sooner, that Jesus was this fraud. Eight days of Thomas walking around furious that he's wasted the last three years of his life. Thomas completely remembering the futile worship that he gave to this fake. Simply every hope Thomas had died on that cross with Jesus. Thomas now thinking and believing Jesus surely was, and this is very modern day thought, Jesus surely was a moral teacher. Jesus certainly was an enlightened prophet, a miracle man, a profound rabbi, and he was kind and gentle and compassionate towards the marginalized. But Thomas now believes in those eight days that's all he was. So for Thomas, his faith begins to bleed out. And doubt sets in and frustration, and he believes, I will never be stooped again. I will never be that gullible again unless. I will not be that gullible again unless. You can just hear in Thomas's like languish and like parched words, unless, unless, unless I get to see and touch, I will never believe. Unless. I'll never forget when my wife and I got engaged. There's this sort of crazy gypsy man that, that became sort of a friend of ours. And we didn't know him all that well. And when he heard about our engagement, he was like, yeah, it's great, sounds great. And he comes up and he puts his hand on our shoulder and he's like, what's my role? And we knew him for like two weeks and he was crazy and he smelled. And we're just like, what? What's my role? He's like, am I a groomsman? Am I a bridesmaid? And he was dead serious about both. What is my role? And I wanted to let him down easy, so I sort of laughed and was like, listen, bro, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Unless, you know, you can show up in an orange tux and a top hat and, you know, a long orange cape type of a thing. Unless you show up like that, you can't be in our wedding. And so we had a good chuckle, (laughs) and we went on our merry way. Well, six months went by, and on our wedding day, we're standing in the church, and across the courtyard, what do we see? A bright, orange tux, top hat, cape thing, the whole deal. And he just shows up and walks in. He's like, here we go. And he's just ready to rock. And so my wife and I are like, okay, you can run the carpet thing down the middle. And he couldn't even do that. And his pants fell down. It was amazing. (laughs) At the moment, I was like, why did I say unless? But now it's like, that was pretty epic. It was a great day. We have video to prove it all. But I find Thomas's doubt, frustration, and ultimately his outcry of unless, unless or I will not believe, I find it heartbreaking. I might venture to say that this has to be one of the most dangerous words when it comes to a relationship with God, when it comes to heaven and hell, when it comes to life and death. It is a dangerous word as it was dangerous for our wedding day when I gave that caveat, when I gave that condition. Allow me to ask, but do you have an unless condition with Jesus? Do you have an, a condition, an unless condition with faith in the God of the Bible? Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, unless I get her and I get him and I have children and I can get pregnant, I will not believe. Unless I go or unless I stay, I will not believe. Unless I'm infirmed in all of my thoughts and urges, I will not believe. Christians, we take this a step further, right? Unless the church community is X, Y, and Z, I'm not going. 
Unless I'm entertained by the pastor, I'm not going. Unless I feel it, I'm not committing. Unless it fits into my schedule, I'm not serving, giving, or loving. The Bible would show us that this is the same temptation and lie that has been told from the beginning of humanity. It's to believe that we creatures somehow hold this leash and all the way to the very end of it, God is collared, the creator is collared. That the creation knows better and can, that can demand anything from the creator. See, God, unless I have this, you, God, are not worthy of me. The Bible would say this notion, this idea is called sin. The Bible would also say that this is instinctually our bend, an instinctual bend of every man, woman, and child. The Bible says to know that, now hear me, and to affirm that in your life to go, yeah, yeah, I am the captain of my own ship. I know that. To affirm that is to then sign your own death warrant. The Bible would say the wages of that is death. So now that's the bad news. Here's the good news. This is the good news. Look down at verse 27 in your Bibles. It should be on the screen. This is the good news. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus had invited Thomas to feel, see, and know that that, that due death has been taken care of. Those wages have been taken care of. Jesus is saying, Thomas, this bleeding proof that sin and all of its deathly consequences, the death warrant, has been paid in full. No more disbelieving, Thomas. Believe. No more disbelieving. Believe. Thomas, seeing this, he spits out probably the only thing he could possibly say in that moment. And look at verse 28. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Now, many people like to discredit this and actually say that Thomas is cussing. My Lord, my God! That's stupid. That's not what he's doing. That's stupid. He's saying, my Lord and my God. Thomas gives probably, in my opinion, and I believe many other scholars and theologians' opinions, the highest title and form of identification of Jesus in all of the Bible. This is straight verbal fire, right? My Lord and my God. But get this. Friends, I really want us to see this. If Thomas's confession is true, then what we are seeing is a scarred God. Have we thought about that before? If Thomas is right, my Lord and my God, then what he is looking at, who he is talking with, is a God with wounds. Not just a teacher with bruises, or just a man with cuts, or some prophet with scars, but Thomas is beholding a wounded God. This, friends, is the type of God I and you should want. A wounded God. I was reminded this morning of Jane Kenyon's poetry, and it's graphic, where she says this. The God of curved space, the dry God, is not going to help us. But the son whose blood splattered the hem of his mother's robe. That's intense. 
A wounded God is a God who knows. It's a God who got dirty. It's a God who got busy. A God who's active. It's a God who is present. A God who handles it. These wounds crack Thomas open. And he realizes life and death will never be the same again. Everything that he has heard and thought to believe, he now trusts. Holy. Now maybe you're thinking, well, yeah. Duh. Yeah. If we got to see risen, zombie, scarred up Jesus, then we would believe as well, right? If I got to be in that moment, we would believe as well. So if we can march Jesus down this aisle right now, we would all believe. But remember this. Jesus completely rebukes Thomas for his disbelief. Thomas wasn't listening to his friends saying, we have seen Jesus. Thomas wasn't listening to the other countless witnesses the Bible says there was to the, to the risen Jesus. Thomas, wasn't, well, Thomas was conditioning his faith and his belief on terms that he would define alone. And Jesus says, you do not need to see me. You do not need to touch me to believe in me. People do not need this. People do not feel my scars. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Really? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Blessed are those who believe and don't see. Blessed are those who read the Bible and hear accounts preached like Easter sermons in 2017 in Santa Monica Bay Women's Club in California and believe. I'm reminded of a um, C.S. Lewis quote, and it wouldn't be an Easter sermon without a Lewis quote, right? But I'm reminded where he says this. It's long, so bear with me. C.S. Lewis said, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by somebody you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there's such a place as New York. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there is such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary person believes in the solar system, atoms, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority. Now, this could sound like that I'm saying that the Christianity is based, uh, is faith based with no facts or signs or truths. That is not what Jesus is saying, and that is not what I am saying. In fact, a Paul, a New Testament author, argues in another book in the Bible, he actually says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, but we just believe it in our squishy little hearts, nope. If it never happens and you still just believe it, wrap this thing up pointless. Pack up the chairs. Get out of here. Pointless. Our faith would be pointless. Our beliefs and our hearts would be pointless if it did not happen. Paul's saying it's not good enough to just believe in your heart. Saving faith, yes, is, is, is more than just a belief, but it's never less. And friends, I'm here to say that's the point. That is the point. That's what Easter is supposed to do to our lives, to our quiet, Sunday-only religious beliefs or unbelief. It's supposed to challenge them. Easter was never supposed to be this really comfortable outing. It is supposed to challenge our worldviews, and it's supposed to shake us alive. 
That's what Easter is here to do. Because if Easter is true, then everything we thought we knew about this world, about life, and especially about death, becomes undone. There's this amazing moment in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Sam finally sees Gandalf. Does anybody remember it? It's in the books. If he finally sees him after the insane journey is over, and Sam cries out and he says this. He goes, Gandalf! He goes, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he goes, is everything sad going to become untrue? And then he goes, what, what's happened to the world? Does this, I mean, in my opinion, this has the same overtones of Thomas, right? And then Gandalf responds, oh my gosh, my heart's going to melt. Gandalf responds, bear with me. He goes, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. <sighs> Kevin, right? Yeah, dude. Holy smokes. A great shadow has departed. <sighs> to believe in the risen Christ today is concrete assurance that everything sad is going to come untrue. That truly the shadow on this life will and has departed. Friends, Easter is not the end. It is the beginning. It's the beginning, and get this, it is the beginning of God's rebellion. Easter is the beginning of God's rebellion. Here's what I mean. To believe in the power of the resurrection is to know in faith that miscarriages, that corrupt justice, the senseless killings, that school shootings, church shootings, racism, sexism, and broken marriages, and past abuse, and current fears are not the end of us. The empty tomb is God's grand protest to all brokenness. The empty tomb is also God's grand promise that cancer, Parkinson's, MS, they will not define us. Lost homes, lost jobs, lost children, lost loved ones, the resurrection promises they will not crush us because Jesus has overcome. Because Jesus is reigning. Because Jesus is who he says he is. I don't know if you know this or not. It's so crazy. If you do any sort of scholarship or trying to understand the gospel of John, what's clear is that all commentators say this. All commentators are read. said this moment, this very moment is the climax of the entire book. This Thomas doubting moment, this is the climax of the entire book. These small amount of verses. I found that interesting. Maybe that was just me. But here, here's why. Here's why it's the climax. Because Thomas connects the dots. This wasn't just anybody raising from the dead. This wasn't Chris Angel raising from the dead. This wasn't, you know, Elvis Presley raising himself from the dead. This is somebody who claimed to be God. That's, that's outrageous. This is somebody claiming to be God, rising from the dead. So Thomas connects the dots, and this is the climax, because now we know that if Jesus is truly risen, the empty tomb vindicates every claim he has ever made. Signed, sealed, and delivered every claim he's ever made. The giver of life, light of the world, the future judge, the door of salvation, the healer, the savior, the way, the truth, and the life. It's true. All of it. 
my Lord and my God. You see, these words go against our, 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 our Californian blood, right? Against our spiritual bones, against our worldview, against our instinctual bend. Because Easter takes what everybody believes just to be a really good man and replaces it with the God-man. And we're left to go, Easter says, take it or leave it. That's what Easter says. Have you staked your everything on this truth? Look at the personal, intimate nature of my Lord and my God, Thomas says. Thomas, in the climax of the gospel, literally signs his deed over to his life. My Lord, my God, take my everything. You see, Jesus, right now, is completely revealed that he is Lord and he is God. Thus, that means that we are not Lord and we are not God. I was thinking, Thomas played the unless card, right? Unless. Jesus plays that card as well. Jesus plays the unless card. I believe Thomas and Jesus in this moment are showing us that unless you take all of Jesus, then take none of him. Then take none of him. Unless Jesus is your everything, our everything, then take, then he essentially becomes nothing. Unless Jesus is Lord and God of our life, like Thomas said, or he is just some great spiritualist teacher. Believe every letter and chapter of the Bible or reject it. Or reject it. Famed British preacher Charles Spurgeon says it better all the time, but I'm going I'm to read what he said about this. He goes, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is a little better than a dry, dry land faith, and it is not good for much. It's written as the climax because Thomas reveals how every single one of us are to respond on Easter. We aren't to hear the Easter message and be like, yeah, cool, neato, hard-boiled eggs. Like, let's do it. That's not how we're to respond. Every response to the news of Easter is to be worship and awe and adoration and praise and gratitude. My Lord and my God. If you haven't today confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, where you can genuinely say, my Lord and my God, today is the day. Tomorrow is not promised to us. I'll close with these words. They're from Jesus himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus totally delivers it. Do you believe this?